If you have a Bible, let's open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're also going to look at 1 John chapter 4. So if you want to have those two kind of ready. Galatians chapter 5. Remember, if you have no idea where Galatians is, please feel free to use the table of contents in your Bible. You'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians will be in the letter to the Galatians. Uh, 1 John is going to be towards kind of the end, right before you get to Revelation. Uh, so make sure you kind of you know, put a bulletin there or something. We're going to go to 1 John chapter 4. And so what we're doing this morning is we are going to start a new series over the summer for probably the next nine weeks or so, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. As you know, last week we finished up a 16-month almost study, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. And over the course of the summer, we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, hopefully will be a, just a, a, an edifying, encouraging study for us as we look to uh, how the Spirit moves and works in our hearts. And as you're opening up there to Galatians 5, I'll remind you again, in the New Testament, we've said this is how the Bible works. The Old Testament says somebody's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we looked at for 16 months said somebody's here right now. We're now in the rest of the New Testament, one of the letters of Paul, that says someone's coming again. And who is that someone? The person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so as, we're, as you're opening up to Galatians 5 and kind of have a, another thumb there in 1 John chapter 4, you may have something similar to what we have in our house. In our house, uh, in, on the door frame that goes into the kitchen, if you were to come and look, you'll see a bunch of pencil marks. There's a bunch of pencil marks on the door frame there. And aside from Callum's pencil mark, he's way at the top. You know, I, I, I always feel uh, when I have to follow Callum on a microphone and it's like way up here and I have to pull it down. For a while, Callum was a system of measurement in our house. It's three Callums tall. Aside from him... <laughs> Way up here. The rest of ours are kind of bunched down here. Each of these pencil marks points to a stage of physical growth for the Latham kids. Mom and Dad, we kind of had marks on there too, but they became benchmarks to beat. You know, I'm, I'm kind of growing more out than I am up. And so for, in many ways, it was, uh, you know, you, you come, and it's been fun to kind of just mark these changes in physical growth. You know, uh, also at the same time, if our kids come and say, hey, my, my knees are hurting, we go, hey, it's time to measure you. And we go, I got uh, Stokes surpassed me long ago. He loves to remind me of that. Uh, Ellie Grace is sneaking up on me quickly. But, you know, you, you may have similar ways that you measure physical growth in your house or when you grow up. Some people buy, like, the big wooden rulers that have the things on them. It's just kind of fun to kind of track how you're growing and in stature. Uh, you might have other ways to measure physical growth. It might be that pile of old shoes that you have in your house, and you're wondering, like, how in the world did we, didn't we just buy that pair, and now we've outgrown another pair of shoes? Maybe it's a pile of old clothes that you outgrew. That becomes more of my current trajectory. But, you know, you think we all have different ways to measure physical growth, but how do you know that you're growing as a Christian? How do you know that you're growing spiritually? What are the, for lack of a better phrase, what are the pencil marks that you can see? How do we know that we're growing as a Christian? Well, Galatians 5, 22 to 23, that we're going to look at this morning, that through the words of the Apostle Paul, God has given us nine specific signs that we can use to see if we're growing spiritually. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And here's what the Gospel Transformation Study Bible said that I thought was helpful. He said, notice that Paul speaks of fruit, not fruits with an S. 
Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist to work through, but the unified blossoming of a heart liberated by the gospel of grace. I thought that was a great and helpful quote. It's not a checklist for you to work through. It's a sign of a heart that has been liberated by the grace of God. And their their heart has been changed and moved. Well-known 20th century English pastor and theologian Dr. John Stott prayed this prayer every morning when he woke up. He would pray, Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A prayer that John Stott would pray. Christopher Wright, speaking about John Stott, said this. Many people who knew John Stott personally said that he was the most Christ-like person they ever met. For God answered his daily prayer by making the fruit of the Spirit ripen in his life. And what the Spirit of God does above all is to make those who put their faith in Jesus to become more and more like the Jesus they love, trust, and follow. In fact, we could say that the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23 is a beautiful picture of Jesus. For of course, Jesus himself was filled with the Spirit of God, and it is Christ who dwells within us through the Spirit. So the more we are filled with God's Spirit, and the more the Spirit ripens his fruit within us, the more we will become like Christ. End quote. That was a long quote, but a good one. If you're a Christian, these character traits are like seeds that were planted in your heart by the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion. And they continue to grow throughout your life as you are conformed more and more to the image of Christ through the process we we know as sanctification. The goal of our sanctification is to become more and more like Christ. And it is a work of God's free grace, as our catechism says, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of Christ and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live under righteousness. But it's a work of God's free grace. And Philippians 1 reminds us that he who began that good work in you will carry that work until the day in in Christ Jesus when it's completed. We think about this, it's important to keep in mind that these are the fruits that God produces in you because he loves you not as rules for you to keep to earn his love or to prove yourself. Again, this is not a checklist to work through. This is things that we trust the Lord is going to change and shape our hearts. But it's important to kind of get the cart and the horse in the right order, the chicken and the egg in the right order. They're fruits that God produces in you because he loves you. These are not things that you do in and of yourself of your own strength that you bring and say, will you now love me? These are fruits that he works in your life because he loves you. We're going to see that in 1 John when we go there in a minute. We all, myself included, the guy standing right up here, failed to produce all of these on our own strength. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why the gospel message is so sweet. The Holy Spirit does the work at the heart level, and we trust his work in us over the long haul as we pray like Stott did. Lord, give us more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Lord, help me to become more like your son. Lord, be at work in my heart. Help me to manifest these fruit. Lord, I can't do this in and of myself. We look at this list and go, oh, I'm in big trouble. We say, I can't do this. That's why this is called the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of your own effort. 
We ask and pray that the Lord would help us in this way and shape us and conform us more to the image of Christ. And so with that in our mind, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, we're just going to read two verses here, but we're going to go to 1 John. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm grateful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminders like this, that you are working in our hearts And so, Lord, as we sit under your word this morning, we pray that you would shape us and conform us and challenge us. Help us to take these words by the power of the Spirit and receive them by faith. Lord, re-describe reality to us this morning. We're so quick to forget. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at this passage in in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, the context, the larger context for these two verses is a larger contrast between the fruit of the flesh, sarks, and the fruit of the Spirit. We even talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning. The book of Galatians was written by Paul to to address a group of agitators known as the Judaizers who were attacking Paul and his ministry personally. And what they were doing was basically teaching a distorted form of Christianity that required circumcision for salvation and other works of the flesh. And so his, his emphasis on, they focused on the outward flesh. Boasting only in your flesh or what you do, we're reminded of over and over again, only leads to pride and self-righteousness and a false assurance of faith. It's looking to a personal checklist instead of Christ and Christ alone. We look to Christ. Paul is warning the Galatians not to listen to this false teaching because it only focused on outward obedience, not inward heart change. And Paul offers a stern warning to those relying on the flesh. Look at what he says in verses 19 to 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Very stern warning there. But as you can imagine, we all have the tendency to fall into this trap due to our sinful nature. Why? Because we come pre-hardwired to earn. We love to look and say, look at what I've done. That whole letter to the Galatians is all about that. And he's looking to the Galatians and go, you have left the gospel. Why are you trying to earn this? You can't do it. Your outside work of the flesh, and your, it, it matters not. Look to Christ. Focus on Christ. Trust in Christ. Look at what he's done. It's not about you. It's about Christ, as we're reminded over and over again. Here's what Jerry Bridges said in his really helpful book, The Fruitful Life. I would highly recommend it to you. Bridges said, Our first reaction, if we are realistic at all, is probably to say, I can't work on all of these. That indeed is true if we were left to our own devices But these traits are the fruit of the Spirit, the result of His work within us. We see this list and go, I can't be perfect in all of these. And you feel crushed by that. But what if you're not left to do that all on your own? What if the Lord has promised to give you the Holy Spirit to help you in this, that you are not alone, you are never alone in the Christian life? Wouldn't that change the way that we see this? 
Now, this doesn't mean that we're just passive robots and we bear no responsibility, but what it does mean is that we fulfill our responsibility under God's direction and by the Holy Spirit's enabling power as He equips us and changes us by grace to be more like Christ. Again, we heard this morning in Sunday school, as Sproul said, the fruit of the Spirit is not something we as Christians do, it's what we are. It's what just marks us, changes us, separates us in some ways. Like Our, our lives become kind of pictures of this. We see the Lord's work in our heart and we say, thank you, Lord. Now, love is mentioned first on the list for a reason. Christians are to be known by their love. Remember, we sang that song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And we think culture has really hijacked this idea of love because this love is not the kissy parts in a movie type of love. It's more than just being nice to people. So what kind of love is this? They'll know we are Christians by our love, but what does that actually mean? Let me give you a few verses here. Galatians chapter 5, 13, kind of the 13 into verse 14 says this, But through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 34 to 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Philippians 2, that great picture of Christ's humility. Philippians 2, 3 to 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Maybe you picked up on the type of love that we're talking about here. Remember, it's not the kissy parts of the movie type of love. It's not just being nice to people. There's something else. It points to something else. What is that? The Greek word Paul uses here is agape. And what this type of love is, is a love that serves others. It's a love that thinks of others before itself. It is a servant-hearted, you-go-first, even-at-my-own-expense type of love. It doesn't just show love because of what the person can give back. You love just because you want to, not because you're going to get anything in return. It's a self-sacrificial, serving type of love. It's a, you, you can take that one even though it's my favorite color type of love. It's, you go first, I'll wait. I'll take the harder job so that you can have an easier one. I'll think about you before I think about myself type of love. It's a self-kind of deferring love. This is not a controlling, selfish love driven by someone, how someone makes you feel about yourself. This type of love is born out of an understanding of just how much you have already been loved in Christ. And that love flows out. Now we typically only show love because of what we can get back in return. It can kind of be a selfish love. I love you so that you can give me something back. And that is not what we're talking about here. This type of love shows that the seed planted in your heart by the Holy Spirit is healthy and alive. It's growing and bearing this fruit of love. If we, as we have this mind among ourselves in Christ Jesus that He laid down His life to love and serve others. The, the, the Lord came not to be served but to serve and to give His life away. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. So we as Christians, we're called to pursue the way of love in 1 Corinthians 14.1. But you ask the question, why is it so hard to love others like that? We hear that call, and you say, that is so hard. Why is it so hard to love others like this? Because we have sin in our hearts. <laughs> That's why. I mean, let's face it. Let's be honest. We love ourselves more than God and especially others. Sin makes us love ourselves. The heart of sin is I want what I want when I want it. And we focus inward upon ourselves. And we love ourselves. That's the heart of sin. We try to be our own God. We want to be God, not serve God. You can probably think of times when it's been really hard to love others. Maybe someone in this very room. Now flip over to the right and go to the letter of 1 John. We're going to look and explore this topic of love a bit more. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to kind of camp out here. 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 19. So go to the right. And as we're thinking about this, this idea of love and what it looks like, let me, as you're turning there in your Bibles, let me ask you a couple of questions. When you were growing up, or maybe right now if you're a young one, did you have a favorite stuffed animal? You probably did. I did. And you ask the question, why did you love it? It may have been a blanket or a pillow or a stuffy that you had. Why did you love that stuffed animal? Mine was Betty by Bert. You know Bert and Ernie? Betty by Bert. It was Bert in pajamas. And by the time I had run roughshod over Bert, he was, he was missing an eye. You know, he'd been sewed up a couple of times, had some stains on him. He looked like a stuffed animal that had been loved well. You may think about one that you have, that you grew up with, and you think about how it, it maybe at the end of it all, it looked a little like behind a truck for a while. But that was because you carried it everywhere, and you loved it. When I think about Betty by Bird, I ask, like, why did I love Betty by Bird? Why do we love these stuffed animals? Why do, why do we do that? Did Betty by Bird actually do anything for me? No. It was, a, it was cloth and stuffing. And I even tore one of his eyes off. You know, and so why, why, did, why did I love him? Did he, did he actually do anything for me? No, he was just cloth and stuffing. I loved him simply because I chose to set my love upon him. I loved him because I loved him. This type of love reveals the heart of God towards us, and it points us beyond ourselves and our own self-worth, and it reveals the heart of the gospel. Why does God love us? Because we're awesome? Because we bring a lot to the table? Because we listen to him really well? Because we're perfect and put together? No, that's not how the gospel works. We, he, we, he loves us simply because he chose to set his love upon us, even when we were his enemies. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. And so what do we look to? Quickly, two things. This has all been baked in. We look at the source of love itself, which is God. The source of love, which is God himself. Typically, if you ask what God's defining attribute is, folks will say love. Now, it's actually his holiness. But 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. And so logically it follows that God's holy love is the fountain of all human love. God is the source in and of itself. All love comes from the Lord, comes from God, the creator and generator of this. But then we have to ask the question, when does God's love kick in? When does that kick in? That's the big question that helps us understand the Christian's call to love. Look at 1 John 4, 
verse 7. Look at what is written here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Skip down to verse 19, one of the most helpful verses. We love because he first loved us. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. We know what love is because God loved us first. He chose to set his love upon us before the foundation of the world simply by grace. Ephesians chapter 2, 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ, it's by grace you've been saved. It's this concept of God's gracious love before the foundation of the world. You might hear that word grace, and you're like, what's a definition of grace? I hope you know if you've been coming here for a while, our church is named Grace. Wouldn't you like to know how we define that? Grace is undeserved favor given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. Let me say that one more time. Grace is undeserved favor given to an unworthy recipient by an unobligated giver. That is what grace is. And so you think about what is being set before us, that God set his love upon us when we were at our, at our worst, and he was under no obligation to give it to us. And this is the radical hope and the pursuing love of God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, while we were at our worst. And here's the thing. The gospel is never going to be good news to you if you think that you are lovely on your own. The gospel will never be good news. The gospel's not good news for people who think that they're pretty good and then Jesus kind of just tells them a couple of good ways to live. The gospel's never going to be good news to you if you think that you are lovely on your own. Here's what Richie Sessions said. If you only think you're half of a wretch, then grace will only be half amazing. Great quote. The gospel will never be good news if you think God loves you because you're a good person or do a bunch of good things. You'll just see it as something you earned. At the end of the day, God's love will be just something that's like, well, I put all of my sacrifices and effort and good works into the, into the slot like a Coke machine. I put my coins of my works in and I, I now have put enough coins in and I can push the button and the prize pops out. That's not how the gospel works. That's moralism. That's left up to you. It's an endless treadmill. It just demands more and more and more. How much good work? How much love? How much joy? How much peace? How much will finally be enough to tip the scales? That's not how the gospel works. No wonder the gospel's not good news to you if you think that it works like that. What if it didn't at all? The bad and the good news of the gospel is this. It's simultaneously bad news and good news. Because the gospel tells you that you are more wicked than you could ever imagine. The Bible says you're way more sinful than you could ever imagine. That's the bad news. But simultaneously in Christ, you are more loved and desired than you could ever hope or dream. So it's cheer up. You're way worse than you think. But guess what? Christ loves you. Here's what Spurgeon said. He said, electing love selected some of the worst to be made the best. Pebbles from the, book, from the brook are turned by grace into jewels for the royal crown. Good, what a great quote. This is great news. And you think, that sounds too good to be true. Yeah, I know. Because we think, what's the catch? What's the catch? 
It sounds too good to be true, especially if you've grown up hearing that God only loves good boys and good girls, and grown up hearing God only helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible, by the way, thankfully. God does not help those who help themselves. You can't help yourself. There are no good boys and good girls. And God chose to set his love upon the least of these, the weak, his enemies, those broken, those shaking their fist at him. He chose to set his love upon them, give them a new heart, and draw them to himself by grace. The gospel is great news. It's incredible news for those who realize that they can't save themselves, that they can't do this on their own. That they recognize that God is holy. Holy, holy. You recognize that. Even if you're here and you don't believe it, it does not change the fact that God is holy. And then by the gospel, the light switch flips on and you realize I'm not holy. And I have a big problem then. And I need a Savior. And that Savior's name is Christ Jesus the Lord. So if you're here trying to do it all on your, under your own steam, I as a minister of the gospel ask you to get off the treadmill of works. It's not going to work. And I ask you to do what I say every week. Remember I said i got one pitch. I throw the fastball every week. What's that pitch? Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Focus on Christ. Look to Him. It's all about Christ. Because how, when you think about the, the promise of the gospel, how do we know that God loves us this much? What pencil mark can we kind of point to? What is the thing that we can look to? How do we know that Christ loves us this much? We saw in the first point the source of, of love, God himself. The second point is the proof of that love. What is the proof of that love? It is Jesus Christ the Lord. That is the proof of that kind of love. That's how we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is true. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Look down at verse 9. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Think about the gospel that's being laid here in front of you. God the Father loved us so much that he sent his only son Jesus into the world. Verse 9 tells us that God made his great love, this great love that which he had. How did he make it known? He made it known by sending his son Jesus into the world. Verse 10 tells us it's not because we loved God first, but because he loved us first. He set his love upon us like Betty by Bert, like you with your stuffed animal. When you were broken and messed up and had stains all over, he chose to set his love upon you because he loves you. Just because. Don't you think about that? And what did he do? What did Christ do? He sacrificed himself, willingly laid down his life because he loves you to secure that way to God that we sang about. He has washed us with his blood. He has secured our way to God. Not through our effort, not through our work, but through his blood, through the cross. It's amazing when you think about it. Verse 11 asks us that if all of this is really true, what are we called to do? Love one another as Christ has loved us first. Remember, you got to get the order in the you got to get the order in the right order. We love why? Because he first loved us. 
It's an overflow of our understanding of the gospel. I have already been loved so much that I want to share that love with others. Not so that I would earn his love, but because he already does. It's the amazing thing about the gospel. It's really, really hard, isn't it, though? But it's how God has built us to live and to grow, and we ask the Holy Spirit to grow this fruit in our heart. We go before the Spirit and say, Lord, help me to love people like that. We recognize I don't love people like that. Lord, help me to love others as you have loved me first. Help me to lay down my life for others in a self-sacrificial way, almost to kind of get over myself so that I can love others like you have loved me. Give me the help in that regard. Help me to do that, even when I don't want to. Lord, grow this fruit in my heart. Help me to trust you. Help me to remember that, God the Father, you love me so much that you sent your only Son, Jesus, into the world to do what I could never do on my own. We ask the Holy Spirit to show us people that we have a hard time loving, and ask Him for the strength and courage to approach that person in love and to ask for forgiveness and grace. To say, I don't love you the way I should, and I'm sorry. Help me, oh Holy Spirit, help me to love you. Help me to seek forgiveness. Help me to repent. Help me to say I'm sorry. Help me to not try to keep puffing myself up. Help me not to go and do that so that I can watch you grovel. Help me to take the lead and say, I'm sorry, and would you please forgive me, and I love you. Let's move forward. It's a high and noble task, is it not? But we see and we look to Christ, not ourselves. We remember that God loved us first and sought us out while we were at our worst. And may we be quick to extend grace and love to others around us. We all have bad days. We all mess up. We all let our tongues get away from us. None of us are perfect. We all need Jesus, do we not? And help us to love one another by the power of the Spirit. So we think, so what? So what? Why should we care? A couple of questions. How do you think this town would be different if Christians took the lead on loving others like this? How do you think our town would look different? What if we were known by our self-sacrificial love instead of our smug self-righteousness? How do you think our town would look? Christians have always been known for their love for others. And the call today is let's put that servant, this type of servant love into practice as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As our catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? Why are we here? Why have we been made at all? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How do we do that? Lots of ways. Tons of ways. But the main avenue and conduit for that is I'm going to give of my life for the sake of yours. Because Christ did that for me first. Do you see, when you put the gospel in the right order, suddenly you do things out of an understanding of just how much you have been loved. And so all of a sudden you say, you know what? With the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to kind of get over myself, and I'm going to go love and serve others in this way and give my life away for the sake of those around me, in my marriage, in my family, in my place of business, in my friend groups, everywhere where I go. May my life be marked by this type of love out of an overflow of the understanding of just how much I've been loved first. When I was at my worst, Christ loved me. And that's a good thing to dwell upon. Let me close with this. Jonathan Edwards, 
one of the greatest minds America has ever produced. I'm an Edwards guy. Here's what he wrote in his book, Charity and His Fruits. He wrote this, Do not make an excuse that you have not opportunities to do anything for the glory of God, for the interest of the Redeemer's kingdom, and for the spiritual benefit of your neighbors. If your heart is full of love, it will find vent. You will find or make ways enough to express your love in deeds. When a fountain abounds in water, it sends forth streams. This type of love, as it wells up in our hearts, it will find a place to escape. And we ask, O oh Lord, help me to be a fountain of this type of love as I look to the true source of that fountain, which is your heart, which is you, O oh Lord. Help me to dwell upon you and then love others out of the overflow of that. Help me to dwell upon Christ. Help me to dwell upon the gospel. Help me to dwell upon this, this humble verse. We love because he first loved us. That's the gospel. That's what we cling to. We look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Rest in Christ. Glory in Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this reminder of your love for us that while we were at our worst, while we were at our weakest, while we were your enemies, you laid down your life for us. Forgive us for all the ways that we're looking to ourselves and we are thinking, well, we deserve this or we have earned this somehow. Lord, help us to repent and help us to trust in Christ. Lord, all that we have is because you have done it first. We love others because you first loved us. And give us the strength, O oh Lord, to trust you. Give us a heart to seek forgiveness, to seek repentance before you. Lord, help give us a heart to love others. It's really hard. We, we can't do this in our own strength, and that's why we need you. And so, Holy Spirit, please work this type of love into our hearts, a self-sacrificing, self-giving away love because of all that Christ has done for us first and help us to dwell in the richness of the gospel. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.